Well, if you would, look with me in Philippians 3. We're going to be looking at verses 10 to 16. But for context, let's start in verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 9 is one of the classic verses on justification by faith. Verse 10, that... I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Everything that we are, our identity is bound up in that phrase, in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature Think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to this text, your spirit would move in a way that confounds us all. Give us ears to hear. Prepare our hearts to receive the word today in the obedience of faith. If we're sleepy, wake us up. And we pray that we would magnify your worth by attentive worship through the hearing of the preached word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Arthur F. Burns was... The one-time chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve System. He was also an economic counselor to many presidents, from Eisenhower to Reagan. Indeed, in the mid to late 1970s, he was considered one of the most respected men in Washington, D.C. He had great gravity. They said that when he spoke... D.C. listened. But Burns was also Jewish. And so it surprised this small Bible study, this group of Christians who used to gather in the White House for an informal Bible study. It surprised them that one day Arthur Burns showed up for Bible study. They didn't know what to do with it. They were grateful he was there, but they were uncomfortable. Then he showed up the next week and the next week. Of course, they they wanted to respect his privacy and his, the fact that he was Jewish. 
So at the end of every Bible study, when they would call on somebody to pray, they never called on Burns. Until one day, someone new showed up to lead the Bible study. And he didn't know the unofficial rules, the unwritten rules. And so at the end of the Bible study, he points to Burns to close them in prayer. Of course, everyone's looking at each other in the corner of their eye, shocked, very uncomfortable. But Burns then asked everyone to stand and hold hands in a circle. And he prayed, Lord, bring the Jews to know Jesus Christ. Lord, bring the Muslims to know Jesus Christ. And Lord, Bring the Christians to know Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that prayer became the stuff of legend in Washington, D.C. But Burns brought out a very important point in his prayer. A Christian is someone who in this life never arrives. Never arrives spiritually. Yes, when God justifies the believer, that justification is perfect and it's permanent. We saw that in verse 9. Being found in him, that is Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. Praise God for that. That would be bad news, wouldn't it? But righteousness from God that depends on faith. And for those of you that have never perhaps been here, and maybe that term justification is a new term for you. That's what verse 9 is referring to. Justification is essentially this. God's act, God's gracious act, whereby he pardons us of all of our sins. He forgives us of all of our sins. And he accepts us as righteous In his sight, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now think about that. One of the great needs of the human heart, whether you're a believer or or an unbeliever, is this need to be pardoned, to, to be justified. We feel it at work. We want to be justified by our coworkers. We want to be justified by our boss. We want to be justified by our brothers and sisters at church and our friends. It's one of the great needs. The ultimate need is to be justified. And the reason we feel that need is because God has hardwired us to feel that need. Because our greatest need is to be justified by him. And how he justifies us is in his son. His son came as our substitute. He kept the law's demands in our place so that his righteousness could be credited to us. And then he went to the cross and was, took the judgment that was ours in our place and then was raised from the grave for our justification. That's the good news of the gospel. But when God justifies us, he also sends forth his sanctifying Holy Spirit In our hearts. 
In fact, in verse 3 of this chapter, the Apostle Paul says, We worship by the Spirit of God. It is that work of the Spirit that links this righteousness that's imputed to the righteousness that is now being imparted in us. That's our sanctification. Let me clarify that. The ground of our hope is Christ's righteousness imputed to us, credited to us. It's a perfect righteousness. But the moment we're justified, the moment we're forgiven, God begins to work that righteousness in us. It's imparted in us. That is our sanctification, where we're now conformed into the image of Christ. And the link between that imputed righteousness and that imparted righteousness is the Holy Spirit. And that link, the Holy Spirit, is what Paul considers when he connects verse 9 to verses 10 to 16. Verse 9, that is our justification. Now in verses 10 to 16, God begins to work in us by His Spirit, our sanctification. The one leads to the other. Indeed, Paul says... This is mature Christianity. Notice in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And Paul's personal example is a case study for this. Indeed, once a person has been justified and they behold God's perfections in Christ, we see at the very first verse of this passage, the mature Christian now has a grace-derived Spiritual dissatisfaction. Notice with me in verse 10. He says, that I may know him. He's not satisfied with just having this righteousness credited to him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I mean, these are absolutely convicting words. Think about this. They belong to the one who knew the exalted Christ better than anyone in history. And yet here he says, I'm not satisfied with my knowledge of Christ. I want to know him in a deeper way. There's a holy dissatisfaction with the Apostle Paul. And that's what opens him up to God's blessing. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's this holy dissatisfaction. Remember, this was written by a man who had known the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving way for 30 years. Scholars believe it's some 30 years Since the Apostle Paul has been converted. And in particular what Paul says here is. I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection. Again. Verse 9. Is the ground. Of what he's saying here. This righteousness from God. Which is through faith in Christ. It's not Paul's righteousness. It's the righteousness from God. It's the righteousness of Christ. You see, you won't celebrate the righteousness you've been given if you're too busy polishing 
the righteousness that you think you independently have. But Paul says the latter, that righteousness that we think we independently have, is loss. It's rubbish. We saw that in verse 8. And that's why the righteousness from God, which is through Jesus Christ, has so stirred the Apostle Paul to his core. And it's why he wants to know him. It's because of his righteousness. But what does he mean here by the power of his resurrection? Essentially, he wants to know more, better, experientially, what it means to live the Christian life. Because the Christian life is a life lived in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Anything else is a parody of the Christian life. He wants to know this experientially because it glorifies Christ to live in his power. And that's why he prays, for instance, in Ephesians 1. I pray that the eyes of your hearts, he's saying there your hearts, have eyes, spiritual eyes, may be enlightened in order to know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his inglorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for those who believe. He says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He said, that's the Christian life. And then later in Ephesians 3, he prays that they would be able to to grasp together with all the saints, the power that is theirs. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, You may have power to grasp with all the saints the love of Christ. In Colossians 1, he prays that they would be strengthened with all power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the divine inheritance in the saints. The Apostle Paul recognizes that the Christian life is a life lived in the resurrection power Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what glorifies Christ. Anything else is a parody. And it eclipses the glory. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's all of grace. It's all of grace. But from the human end. We have responsibilities. For instance. Wide awake engagement in corporate worship. God is not impressed when you come to church. So coming to church is not sufficient to glorify God. Coming here bored and listless to check off the box does not glorify God. He wants us to be engaged in worship. He wants us to come with our spiritual ears attentive It does not glorify God to sleep through worship. It eclipses his glory. Wide awake engagement in public worship. Proper observance of the ordinances. Baptism. The Lord's table. 
It's as the elect of God, putting on tender mercies and kindness and meekness towards one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God has forgiven us. It's letting the word of Christ richly indwell us. Colossians 3, 16, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's devoting yourself to prayer. It's availing yourself to all the means of grace by which we come to know Christ and his resurrection power. It doesn't happen by osmosis. Yes, it's all of grace, but we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us to do and to will according to his good pleasure. But also by our willingness to suffer. Note here, Paul wants to share in Christ's sufferings. Just a very weak analogy. Our missionaries this week suffered together. And they know each other better. As a result, they, they went on mission this week and they put in long hours and they suffered together and they come back with deeper relationships. It's a weak analogy, but when we suffer with Christ, for Christ, we come to know him better. Now in the context, it's being willing to be persecuted for Christ's sake. Remember, the government of the day required you to bow the knee to Caesar. Christian can't do that. He only has one king. It's Christ Jesus the Lord. And there's division in the church in Philippi. It's being willing to bear with one another. As he said earlier, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man and as a man humbling himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's the suffering that Christ experienced for us and Paul wants to share in that. Are you willing to suffer for Christ at your job? Even if your co-workers ostracize you? Are you willing to suffer church. We don't get your way. And the goal of all of this, ultimately, notice, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Did the apostle Paul believe in eternal security? Yes. But he also recognized there's a tension in all doctrine. Yes, the believer is secure. And yet, scripture also teaches the believer must persevere Until the end. Those who don't were never saved. In 1 John 2, the Apostle Paul, or John says, They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that they never really belonged to us. The Apostle Paul is pressing on because he wants to experience, he wants to attain to the the resurrection at the end. But he isn't in doubt about his future. When he says, notice, by any means possible, he's not doubting his salvation there or whether he will experience the resurrection in the end. He's uncertain as to the timing 
And as to the circumstances, Paul was not omniscient. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, If Christ returns before we die, our bodies will be transformed into resurrection bodies. If we die before Christ returns, our bodies will be raised from the grave and united to our souls. Either way, we will attain to the resurrection of the dead in the end. And that is Paul's life aspiration. Everything else is fool's gold. And this longing is so hard for us to identify with in the materially comfortable U.S. of A. We are so grateful on this July 4th week of what has been achieved for us by so many men and women. So much so that most of us are quite comfortable in our lives. And I'm grateful for that. But remember this proverb from Proverb 27, 7. He who is full loathes honey. That's a profound statement. When you're full, you don't even loathe. You, you don't even hunger and rejoice in things that are tasty and nourishing. We understand that this hope, this hope of resurrection, it can be a coping mechanism for those who are in dire circumstances. You go to certain places in the world, food is scarce. I've been there. The water is impure. You drink that water, you get sick. Mosquitoes everywhere that can, can bring malaria. Disease, danger, and death are ever knocking at your door. And so resurrection hope can be a coping mechanism for people like that. But this world purged of evil that the resurrection promises is less compelling to people with comfortable homes and good food and entertainment options at our disposal 24-7 and insurance and pharmacies and doctors and nurses and hospitals. Testimony after testimony, and even more importantly, Scripture reveals that fixating and hoping in these earthly things blinds us to true glory and true hope and is the path to discontentment. Just one small object near the eye makes all larger objects invisible. And we have a lot of small objects that are near our spiritual eyes. And when that is the case, it eclipses the one larger object. God and his glory. But Paul didn't have small objects eclipsing his sight. That's why his example is so crucial for us. And ironically, it created in him this, this sense of holy 
dissatisfaction. He had beheld the glory of this God. And he wanted to know this God in a more intimate way. And that brings us to the second point. The mature Christian has a grace-driven, focused life. It's a grace-derived, holy dissatisfaction that leads to a grace-driven, focused life. Notice in verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Oh, that intimate language there. There's at least three truths that I want us to pull out from this verse. First of all, this new perspective that Paul has that conversion brings. Remember, at one time, Paul thought he had arrived spiritually. Notice back in verse 6 of chapter 3. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You speak to many unbelievers today, and all of us were there. We're no better than unbelievers. You speak to many, and they're very comfortable with their moral status. Not all of them, but many of them are. They're very comfortable with their ethical status. Because they turn on the news, and they compare themselves to the the people on the news, and they say, well, I'm not like them. They're very comfortable. Paul was there at one time. But now having experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and having been given new spiritual eyes to behold the beauty and the glory of Christ, he says, not that I have already obtained. In comparison to him, I have not obtained. But now... Knowing that he has not arrived spiritually. He has this new desire to press on. The same Paul who wrote in verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own. But a righteousness from God. Which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. He's now determined to leave nothing on the field. His conversion. Get this. Was a stimulant. Not a sedative. And my fear when I see how many are sedated in Christ's church. And even in my own life at times. We're being blinded to what God has done for us in Christ for some reason. That brings us to the second truth that this verse brings out. We learn the divine perspective on conversion. Notice what it says. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Have you gotten over that? All of us cherish that day, that evening, when we, with the empty hands of faith, embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. But the Apostle Paul says here, the initiative was not with you. Think about his own conversion. He wasn't on his way to a revival when he got saved. He was on his way 
to kill Christians, not bow the knee to Christ. And Jesus Christ interrupted his sin-stained rebellion and revealed his glory to him. Jesus Christ made Paul his own before Paul made Christ his own. It was all of grace. Now, why is that important? It humbles us. And it gives us a sense of awe and gratitude. That is the fuel for the Christian life. It brings us to the third point that we pull out from this verse. The goal of conversion. To make it my own. Christ made us his own. And now we are to make it our own. What's that referring to there? Well, the righteousness of Christ is the motivating factor for the Apostle Paul to have in practice what he has now in position. By position, he's perfect, perfect righteousness. But he knows inherently he's not perfect. He has sinful thoughts, sinful motives, sinful desires. And he hates it because he knows he has beheld the perfect righteousness of Christ. Think about this. The most mature Christian in the history of the church confesses that he's not been made perfect. Now that is encouraging to me. It's hopeful. But he's pressing towards that end. That's evidence of spiritual life. It's not your perfections. It's the hatred of your sin in this new life that evidences itself by desire for perfect righteousness. And it's likely a jab here at the false teachers. Many scholars believe that these were false teachers advocating some kind of perfect state that they had attained. And any belief system that believes that you can reach a perfected state in this life is at odds with the Apostle Paul. Indeed, notice verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. This is beautiful language here. By the way, if this isn't you right now, if this isn't your heart's cry, this is a perfect time as we read this verse to ask God by the very spirit of Christ to make it your heart's cry. This doesn't need to stay outside of us. This needs to become our prayer as we read this. If it doesn't describe us, don't sit here bored. Use it as an opportunity to do business with God. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. What lies behind? His accomplishments? His righteousness independent of God? Independent of faith? And his sins? There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And straining forward to what lies ahead. 
I press on toward the goal of, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This reminds me, one of my favorite mottos is the motto of Spurgeon College. Started by the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's a Latin phrase, et tenio, et tenior. I hold and am, and am held. I hold and am held. Isn't that beautiful? Et tenio, et tenior. I hold and am held. That's Paul's formula as well. Indeed, Paul's formula for Christian maturity can be seen. There's four aspects to it, in fact, that you see here. First of all, an accurate self-assessment. When I am evangelizing unbelievers, generally, the first thing I see is they have the wrong self-assessment. They're either too good to need the righteousness of Christ or they're too bad, they think, to benefit from the righteousness of Christ. But Paul had an accurate self-assessment. Notice what he says. I do not consider that I have made it my own. Similar words as verse 12. Repetitive. Secondly, he had a single eye. But one thing I do, I love that phrase. One thing I do. That is my prayer for you, me, our children, our youth. One thing I do. What does this suggest? There is a single-mindedness to the Christian life. The body may have two eyes. But the soul only has one eye. And either that eye is on the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Or it's on a counterfeit. We're good at embracing counterfeits. Philip Brooks famous preacher from New England. The more we watch the lives of men, the more we see that one of the reasons why men are not occupied with great thoughts and interest is the way in which their lives are overfilled with little things. Little things. Temporal vanities. Life under the sun and the spirit by his inspired word is on a salvage project. That's why the word is here for us this morning. The third aspect of the mature Christian life, a consuming desire. Note the language again. I press on. I forget what is behind. This man's anything but passive. The gospel has not sedated him. It's stimulated him. 
I strain forward. And then secondly, he says for the second time, I press on. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've got a couple of quotes here. I just, I couldn't say them any better and I had to give them to you. The great preacher of the 20th century in England. He says, not a day should pass in our lives, but that we should deliberately and solemnly remind ourselves of these things. I am destined for that glory. I am in Christ and I'm going to be perfected in Christ. That is the goal. Do I know him? Am I like him? I have been apprehended by Christ for that. And that should be the center of my life. The object of my every ambition. God grant that we may all see the goal. That we may be so charmed and attracted by it. That we shall have an eye for nothing but that. The prize, the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul is after, the prize. What is it? Well, it's the well done, good and faithful servant of Luke 19. It's the crown of righteousness, 1 Timothy 4. It's the unfading crown of glory, 1 Peter 5. It's the blood-washed robes of Revelation 7. But again, Dennis Johnson, for me, says it as well as anybody. The prize for which we run is so much more than merely escaping this world's miseries. It is bigger and better than never going to bed hungry again. Or having shelter from the rain and cold. Or being free from the pain of cancer or arthritis. Or having a reunion with lost loved ones. The best thing about the prize that awaits us at the finish line. Is not the taste of food at the Lamb's wedding supper. It's not having tears of sorrow wiped from our eyes never to return. It's not streets of gold or mansions over the hilltop that never need repair. Our alarm systems to discourage thieves. The most intense pleasure of heaven is found in John's vision of the coming new Jerusalem. In which God's servants will worship him. They will see his face. This is the prize that Paul sees. As he stretches his stride towards that goal. And then we have the promise of 1 Corinthians 2. No eye has seen nor ear heard. Nor heart conceived the things that God has prepared, has in store for those who love him. That is the prize here. That brings us to the fourth aspect of the mature Christian life from this passage. A certain foundation. Paul's energy and devotion isn't the panic of someone who lacks assurance. I'm sure... That our mission team saw Mormons in Utah who are very devoted. But it's not out of love. It's out of a spiritual panic. Have I done enough? That's not Paul's motivating factor. He hasn't forgotten verse 9. I have a righteousness from God that's not my own. That is received by faith in Christ. That's the ground of my assurance. 
In fact, it's because both our justification and our sanctification have been accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ that we can respond with joy and gratitude and peace and assurance. And this spurs him on towards the goal for the prize, notice, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, don't get past that phrase, all that we are, our identity is bound up in Christ and his accomplishments for us. And again, Paul's efforts are grounded here by this upward call. What is this call? It's what theologians call the effectual call of God. The work of God's spirit whereby he enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renews our wills to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And that call controls Paul's life. It directs Paul's life. It informs his life. And you say, well, that's good for him. In fact, I want my apostles to be that devoted to Christ. I think that's how we sometimes think. I am so glad that the man who wrote 13 books of the New Testament is that devoted. But I'm a mere mortal. I'm not an apostle. And Paul says, well, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. All of us who've been parents recognize that one of our great hearts cries is for our children to mature, to see things more clearly. And you think sometimes, if only you would mature, you would experience the blessings of being in this home in ways that you never envisioned in your immature state. What Paul is saying. This is not abnormal Christianity. It's normal Christianity. It's Christianity 101. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise. I love this. If you think otherwise. God will reveal that also to you. He'll change your thinking. Only let us hold true. To what we've attained. What have we attained? We've already looked at it. Let me close with these words from Romans 9 where Paul specifically answers that question. He uses that verb here in Romans 9 to answer that question. Romans 9.30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? What does it mean that they did not pursue righteousness? They did not pursue this kind of obedience to the law, self-righteousness. But they attained it by grace. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness by their obedience. That's man-made religion, by the way. Did not succeed in, same verb from our passage, verse 16, reaching the law. Attaining the law. And that righteousness... That has been attained. Becomes the driving 
impetus of Paul's life. That's why he says this one thing I do. Maybe you have said, maybe you have heard, maybe you have read on the bumper sticker. I'm not perfect, just forgiven. There's some beautiful truth to that. It communicates very humbly that I, as a believer, am no better than you as an unbeliever. I'm broken. I'm imperfect. But there's a couple of problems with that statement as well. It makes it sound like I'm just forgiven. And it may imply that forgiveness is all you want. Not Paul. He wasn't satisfied with just forgiveness. He wanted to know the Christ of his forgiveness. It made him anything but complacent. His justification was a stimulant, not a sedative. To pursue Christ, the knowledge of Christ, and the power of his resurrection. Indeed, for Paul, Jesus is more than just a candy dispenser. Dispensing all the benefits of salvation for us. He is more than fire insurance. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. For whom our fellowship, we were designed. And in whose friendship, our soul finds its rest. And so may our hearts on this week that we remember our freedoms, may our hearts say with Arthur Burns and perhaps even more importantly the Apostle Paul that we may know him. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every Christian here this morning that we can say this one thing I do. Streamline our priorities this morning. Misplaced priorities have never worked for us and they never will. Streamline them. Give us a new vision of his glory today. The glory of Christ, the exalted Christ. And Father, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Christ, what a wonderful providential week to experience true liberty. And a week that we remember the liberty that we have to worship you without governmental intrusion. To be set free from the captivity of true bondage. Bondage of sin, death, and the devil. Lord, I would love to speak to those who aren't yet Christians, but are being convicted by your spirit. I pray that you would show them their need for a Savior. And that Savior is Christ Jesus the Lord. Do that work today for the glory of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.